0: From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. It just feels electric in here. Look at you all. I see you all. I see you all. It feels electric to be in a room full of this many talented and passionate people. In 2018, at a ceremony in Chicago, the James Beard Awards were being held. They're sort of like the Oscars of the food world. And there was one chef in particular who was cleaning up that night. His name was Eduardo Jordan. Earlier in the evening, he'd won one award as best chef in the American Northwest. And as the evening closed, he had another one in his sights. His second restaurant, June Baby, which he'd just opened the year earlier, was up for one of the most anticipated awards of the evening, best new restaurant. And the Beard Award goes to ooh,
1: June baby.
0: Eduardo back up for round two tonight.
1: Yeah, not a bad night for him, right? Now he's accepting a second James Beard Award okay, tonight. <laughs> so you know it's it's such a great honor. Um, to be standing up here to accept the James Beard Award for um, Best New Restaurant. Um, you know, Eduardo was the, the
0: first African-American chef to win that honor in the 28-year history of the James Beard Awards. On stage, he thanked the people who helped him get there, his staff, his investors, and, of course, his family. Handed with some words to his young son.
1: And this award is for you, and I want you to dream big, my little star. We're making history tonight. And Daddy wants you to know that if you can dream it, you can achieve it. And the future is yours, but don't forget the past. Thank you, guys.
0: That advice to his son about remembering the past, that was advice that Eduardo Jordan had to learn himself during his long, circuitous path to that stage. Eduardo Jordan is my guest today on the program, and we talked a lot about that path. It was one that took him far away from where he grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida, across several continents, through many, many kitchens, including one in particular, a crazy mecca of fine dining, where technique is honed and spirits are crushed. But that kitchen, the mecca, that one came much later. Eduardo started out in a very different kitchen, his mom's. And he wasn't there by choice. I was a bad kid.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I probably was kicked out of uh, three to four elementary schools. Um, Three to four. Three to four. It it gets gets a little blurry. No one's counting anymore.
0: (laughs) Eduardo had trouble paying attention in class. He said he started falling in with a little bit of a bad
1: crowd. And so his mom started setting boundaries for him at home. My mom, you know, she was like, look, if you want to go outside and play, you're going to have to do this and this before you even think about going outside and play. And it was like, clean your room or go cook with me. And I Mm -hmm. slowly started cooking with my mom because I was like, well, I kind of enjoy cooking more than actually cleaning my room. Um, and that was my ticket to get outside, um, and so, was you know, cooking with your mom? What's cooking with my mom, correct. So describe how that, like, I, this was every day, you would, you would cook dinner? No, it dinner? wasn't, it what, wasn't what, what, no, no, it wasn't every day, yeah. um, it was more what or less, was it? it was more or less like my mom is cooking and she's like, come help me, and I was, and if I said no, it's like, well, don't think about going outside today, you know, it was uh-huh. kind of when she needed help or, hey, can you boil the eggs for me and peel them, um, you know, I was uh-huh. no master chef, but it was definitely an introduction to food. And that excitement led me to cooking more with my grandmother, who was the the big Southern cook in the family. And as the big Southern cook in the family, she had one meal
0: in particular that she was responsible for, Sunday supper. The whole family would go to church, and then afterwards, everyone would get together at Eduardo's grandmother's house. Most weekends, Eduardo and his cousins would go over to her place early to help
1: prepare my grandmother, you know, she used to wake up at the crack of dawn to, to start breakfast and also start the Sunday supper. And there was mornings that I would just wake up and ask her what she's doing. <laughs> she would never tell me much, um, just kind of shooing me out of the kitchen and go turn some cartoons on or something. And But the TV was near the kitchen, so I would sit and watch TV while I'm watching her work in the kitchen. And so that slowly started me... Sticking my head more into the kitchen and asking more questions to the point that she got irritated enough that she gave me start giving me tasks to do, and then um, when she realized that she needed more help, especially on like our big big dinners, like Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas dinners, she'll call me and my other cousin into the kitchen, and we're toasting bread for um, the stuffing, and you know we're 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 chopping collard greens, we're just doing like these little you know little tasks to to kind of help grandmother get through her endless list of food that she needs to get through
0: so she was the head chef and you were like her, her the, little <laughs> <laughs> little chefs, little, right?
1: the little sous chef little sous the little sous and, and what did that feel like for you just interesting i think certain things interest me tearing up things interest oh. me and and building things interest me and 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 food was was building something you started with one little ingredient and it turned into an entire dish you know um, and so that, that was something that interests me. How could she make these leafy vegetables taste so good at the end? Mm-hmm. What did she put in there? What was she doing? She never did it with a recipe. She, you know, she did it off her hip and, and what she had in the kitchen and she made it always taste good. So I was like, well, my mom doesn't technically cook like this. So what is she doing? So I'm taking things from grandmother and bringing it back to my kitchen with my mom and so you're doing this as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old through through teenager years?
0: All the way to college. But college-bound Eduardo Jordan had dreams that had nothing to do with cooking. He wanted to be a track and field athlete, like his idol Carl Lewis. And he even ran track in college. But like a lot of high school athletes, that experience only taught him he didn't have what it takes to succeed at the next level. And so he settled for a career that would at least keep him close to sports. He double majored in business administration and sports management. And after graduation, he landed a big deal internship, working for his hometown Major League Baseball team, the Tampa Bay Rays. He was doing well, he was on a path. It seems possible that his future as a chef may never have come to be, had it not been for this one fact about his internship. It was
1: so boring. One of the jobs that I had as an intern was um, counting banner time. So when you're looking at the game from home, And you're looking at home plate, there's a banner that's right behind home plate. There's also one on first base and third base. And these are sponsors that, you know, pay good money to have their ad at that inning displayed. So one of my tasks was to sit there and count the time that banners were displayed um, at various innings throughout the entire game. There were some games that went to 13 innings. (laughs) There were some innings that were like 45 minutes. These games became long, and all I'm doing is watching banner time, and that game. You're not even
0: watching the game; you're just yeah, watching you're, literally exactly. the shot behind
1: home plate. exactly. <laughs> well, all three bases; you're watching them and, and making sure that you know that that everything's timed right, like to make sure, like Joe's downtown dodge, like
0: their banner <laughs> is yeah, is being displayed.
1: For. Yeah, right. So wow. that, that, was, that was one of the, the mundane tasks that I had that gave me a lot of time to think about my life and my career, <laughs> what I actually want to do.
0: And sitting there with all that time, he reflected on the moments from college when he felt happiest and most fulfilled. Eduardo had been a social person in college. He'd thrown a lot of parties. And like a lot of college kids, he had music and booze at these parties. But unlike a lot of college kids, he also catered them himself. Spent the entire day making food for his guests. Like this one party he threw for his birthday one year.
1: I decided for my 21st birthday, I'm going to have the biggest shebang. (laughs) So, hired a Uh DJ, start buying up tons of food. So, there's probably like 10 to 12 different dishes sitting on my countertop. Um, what kinds of what kinds of food did you have? What did you make? It was kind of Southern fare. I remember we were having collard greens. We had like um, baked chicken wings, um, some kind of, I think, corn casserole or something of that nature. Stuff that you learned from yeah, your from, grandma? from grandma, you know. And there were nearly 200 people in my apartment, down the stairwell, all in the courtyard. I thought like the balcony of my apartment was just going to fall down because there was so many people partying out there. Whoever was in the house, they got enough food, and 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 it was amazing. And you know, people complimented me on the food beyond the party, and I was complimenting myself for the party, not even the food. But it, you know, it's those compliments that you get unknowingly um, about something that I thought was second to the party that kind of inspired mm-hmm. me too. You know, there's like, you know, this was amazing.
0: And you're like, but wait, what about the DJ? Like exactly. that's a special yeah. thing, right? What that's about, about fifty the, bucks on all him? the
1: beautiful people that were there? <laughs> <And> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only one I want to talk about is your casserole. <laughs> well,
0: it's like, I think it's one of those things that I think when you have a gift at something, what it means is that it's easier for you than it
1: is for other people. Correct. Yeah, totally. You know, I I, I knew I love cooking. I knew that I can taste things. I knew that, like, I like reading cookbooks and, and try different things at home, but... I didn't know how other people will take to my food because I didn't cook for that many people in my life. I cooked for my mom, my grandmother, and, you know, some of my best friends. But when you have, you know, potentially 150 people in your apartment and they're dabbling through your food and, and, and that's when you realize, like, oh, you, you got something here. In other words, it was dawning on Eduardo that this thing he'd taken for
0: granted his whole life, cooking, maybe that was the thing he should be focusing on. So after his internship was over, he ditched sports, got a job at Staples to pay the bills, started figuring out his next move. This being the early 2000s, one of the first things he did was start a blog. A blog where he reviewed restaurants in the Tampa-St. Petersburg area. He called the site Tamberg. Many nights a week, he'd dine out, come back, write his review, and be struck over and over by the feeling that the food he made himself tasted better than the food he was eating in these restaurants he was reviewing. And while this is happening, remember, he's blogging from home, he has the TV on a lot during the day. And there's this one advertisement that keeps coming on over and over again.
1: Commercials for Le Cordon Bleu are continually popping up on my TV. And it pretty much came on every 30 minutes. <laughs> Le Cordon Bleu, if you want to become a great chef, join Le Cordon uh-huh. Bleu. You know. And what is Le, Le Cordon Bleu? Le-, Le Cordon Bleu is a um, nationally known cooking school, similar to like the French uh-huh. Culinary Institute. So you applied to... Le Cordon bleu, yeah, and you got in, I'm assuming and I, I got in, and culinary school is very expensive, um you know i I took some major loans out to to make that happen, so it's just like building debt on debt to actually go into something that I wasn't really sure about, <laughs> you know, like how did I graduate from the University of Florida with dual degrees, and now I'm in culinary school with you know forty to fifty thousand dollars worth of debt. Because um,
0: graduating from culinary school, it's not like you; it's an immediate path to riches, correct, right? Like you, you're, you're going to working in kitchens. It's an
1: immediate um like, path to debt.
0: <laughs> what do you make as a beginning? Even if you're in a, in a seven dollars nice an kitchen. hour
1: back in the day, then
0: wow! So you're looking at seven dollars an hour working at a, like even if you get a pretty good job at a decent like hotel restaurant or something exactly. like that.
1: Exactly. Yeah, right. I think I think hotels may have been paying about like ten or eleven dollars at that time, and so I knew. That if I was going to sacrifice as much as I was and getting to this much debt, that I was really going to take this serious. I was going to go work for the best when I'm done with culinary school. A lot of students were coming out of culinary school thinking like they're a chef already. You graduated, now you're a chef. Mm-hmm. And we had no clue what a chef really was. Um, we only knew our chef instructors who you know were at that point in time either tired or burnt out in the industry. Um, So we knew like a small aspect of what they went through, but we didn't know the reality of like what makes a great chef, what makes a great restaurant. You have
0: the wherewithal to realize like, okay, we're learning the basics here,
1: but like we're not learning from the best. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, I, I knew that there was more to the world in the food world that wasn't truly being exposed to me. Um, I was working in a few restaurants in Orlando. Orlando's a tourist trap, as you know. Disney World is there, Universal Uh Studios there. So the restaurant world there, it's kind of turn and burn, deep fryer kind of food. And that's why I was cooking in as a culinary student. I'm like, there there has to be more to this. I did not get myself into culinary school to become the best fry cook. Uh There had to be something (laughs) more to this. And I knew that I needed to find the who's who and what's what and what's going on in this industry. And that took me down a whole rabbit hole of, like, you know, searching on who's the best in the world and who's creating the most exciting cuisine. And that was the start, the second stage to my culinary career. Eduardo basically embarked on his own self-taught master classes that
0: he conducted while he was taking his basic Cordon Bleu course schedule. He spent his free time in the library, reading cookbook after cookbook, getting to know the work of celebrated chefs. And
1: eventually, he came across a book that, to him, stood apart from the rest. The book that struck me the most was The French Laundry. that was Chef Thomas Keller. And tell me about The French Laundry. What is it? Just, just you know, for people who may not know. Yeah. What is The French Laundry? Well, one is still one of the, the greatest restaurants in, in the world. Um, And at that point in time of me opening that cookbook, his first cookbook, Thomas Keller, that restaurant was voted the best restaurant in the world. And we're not talking about just California or the United States. We're talking about the entire world. Uh He's an American chef cooking French cuisine, um, moved out to California after kind of um, struggling in the restaurant world in New York and um, ended up landing in Yonkville, who no one has ever heard of before then. Um, besides Napa Valley and the wine world, but no one really cared about Yountville. And, you know, when I opened up that book, it was just like, that's when the light clicked. That's when the light actually came on. And I realized that there was so much more to the food world that I wasn't seeing and that I needed to be a part of it and I needed to get out of my circle um, in Florida to experience something more.
0: What was it about the book? What did you see in that book that...
1: It was just, it was... It was takes on classic things that we were learning in culinary school and, 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 and put in reality for me. Um, classic sauces that I finally get to see done elegantly, done in a lighter fare, in a sense. Um, French cuisine mm-hmm. is very heavy, if you can go back from a traditional standpoint. Um, a lot of butter, making sauces of roux, um, things that are like, Thick and rich, right. And then there was a there was a swing to kind of make French cuisine a lighter, um, lighter fare, mm-hmm. nouvelle cuisine, um, and, and just figuring out how to make French cuisine just feel healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had the perfect Chef Keller had the perfect balance of um, classic techniques, classic dishes done in this nouvelle kind of thought process, but also kind of um, he had fun with his food. You know, he had a, mm-hmm. a cornet dish with salmon tartare and this little um, twill that looked like an ice cream cone. And I thought it was like, wow, that's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's like nostalgic that you can think about ice cream, but it actually it's fish with creme fraiche in there. And it's like, what is this? And then like roulades and terrines and, 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 you know, various techniques that just, like, we talked about, but I never saw. And just to see the picture and just, like, see how clean it was and how precise his recipes were, it's just, like, it was mind-blowing. It's just, like, I want to be a part of this. Like, this is how you become a great chef. Opening that cookbook was like opening a
0: travel guide to a world he wanted to get to. But the French Laundry, it's not the kind of place you can just show up and get a job. How Eduardo Jordan went from manning a deep fryer in Orlando to the kitchen of one of the world's best restaurants. That's coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm personal price plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most. At an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state, options selected by customer, availability and
1: eligibility may vary.
0: Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with chef Eduardo Jordan. When we left off, Eduardo had just discovered the French Laundry Cookbook, the thing that to him represented everything he wanted to learn and be as a chef.
1: So, I ended up graduating from Le Cordon blue, and I was applying to the French laundry and never heard anything back from them um and The only way you can apply was either email or a letter and I did both mm-hmm. um and so I realized that they weren't going to answer and the, one of the requirements for Lacordon blue is that you have to get a internship or apprenticeship before you technically graduate um so I ended up getting a job at um a local place in Tampa called Mise en Place. But, you know, I I mentioned to um, Farrell, who was the sous chef at that point in time, the second in command of the restaurant. I was like, look, man, I'm I'm thankful for having a job here, but I really want to go work at the French Laundry. (laughs) And he's like, boy, who are you? You know, who's this kid (laughs) coming right out of culinary school saying that he wants to work at the French Laundry? And this is Tampa, Florida. You're like you have no clue what it takes to get to the French laundry, and he's he's a smart, talented chef, too, uh-huh. so he knew what French laundry meant, and you know just a few weeks in he realized like I was serious, and I was taking what I was doing extremely serious, and he looked at me and he said something to the nature,'s like, "Look, I haven't seen anyone as talented as you and work as hard as you." So follow your dreams, and that that made me realize like I need to continue applying for the French laundry, and so I continued sending emails and and, and um, letters out to to the point that I got pissed because <laughs> I wasn't getting the answer, and I think we had like a somewhat of a winter break or something of that nature, and I decided to get on the airplane and and, and take a trip to um, San Francisco, which meant that I was in close vicinity to Yountville. So I rented a car and I drove up to Yountville and went through the courtyards and stood there and looked with the the twinkle eyes of like, can someone please help me? Help me. I need help. I have questions. <laughs> Till someone finally came out. It was a front of the house person. I was like, yeah, I'm interested in working here. And um, they ended up grabbing the sous chef. Very good guy. His name is Devin Nell. Thank you, Devin Nell, for entertaining me <laughs> at that point in time in my life. Um, but Devin was very welcoming. Um, and what were you? What were you saying? What did you do? What, what like Devin comes out? What are the words you say to him? Um, well, I, I knew that I had to like knock it out of the park and 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 not stutter and be you know upfront and and exact with him. And I was like, yeah, I, I just graduated culinary school. I work in a place called mise en Place in Tampa. And he said mise en Place? I was like, yeah, mise en Place. Because Place is a term that we use in the kitchen. It Means mm-hmm. you know, keeping your things in order and having everything ready. And he's like, look, you know, if you're really serious about coming away from Tampa to come work here, um, here's my email. Email me your resume. So I had a personal connect then to at least drop my email to the right person. And I emailed him my resume when I got back home. And I think within two weeks later, he responds back. He's like, if you're serious about coming out, we have an opening in March and we'll love to have you come out. As what? as a I was an intern paid intern? it was a six six month no no <laughs> an unpaid internship uh-huh. but I knew that there was more to this decision of going to work at the best restaurant in the world, even if it meant working for free so so you get to the French laundry what's talk about the first day you show up what's it like there <laughs> uh the first day I arrived at the French laundry, I remember so vividly um I had on my University of Florida um, sweatshirt. I think I had blue jeans on, um, tennis shoes. And this wasn't a work day. This is actually just me showing up, figuring out what's the next stage and what's the next step that I do. Uh And um, the first person I run into is Chef Thomas Keller. (laughs) <laughs> and, I mean, I think I wet my pants uh, because I, I just wasn't expecting him to be the first person that I met. And he wasn't expecting me. He had no clue who I was either. But uh-huh. um, Chef Keller, um, he he um, he greets everyone by saying, hello, Chef. And so, you know, it was the first time someone called me Chef, even though, you know, I was nobody. And he's like, good morning, Chef. How can I help you? And that that humbled me really fast. Um, I realized that, you know, I I, I need to be laser focused because you never know who's going to be behind you on your side or next to you, whatever the case is. And that was the occasion all the time. You know, you never knew when Chef Keller was going to pop in on you. You know, there's times that I was working in the back kitchen and he's like staring over my back and I didn't realize it. And, you know, hopefully you're you're doing it right because, you know, if not, you're, you're getting scolded because... He knows that that's not the right way, and you should know that's not the right way to do it. It was a nerve-wracking experience. Like I said, I never experienced a kitchen of that level before. You know, not many people ever. Chefs don't get to experience kitchens of that level and that caliber. It's intense. You know, it's fiery. What
0: is what is the difference though? Like, because like, a lot of the times, like you're, you know, dicing an onion is dicing an
1: onion, right, mm-hmm. or or not. Well, that's a open-ended <laughs> question. You know, long story short, you know, a, a cut onion is a cut onion. But if you're smashing that onion into it turns to water, that's not a cut onion anymore. Mm-hmm. You you denatured the structure of that onion. And so, yes, it's going to start tasting different when you start applying heat or if you don't apply heat. It's going to be different mm-hmm. tones that are enhanced or hindered by the way you actually Cut it. Mm-hmm. So it does matter. Um, it also matters from a presentation standpoint. You know, if you're, you're looking for the perfect dice because it's going to be presented on the plate, then it needs to be a perfect dice to look beautiful.
0: And that's the kind of attention to detail. That's attention like, to
1: detail. You can dice an onion yeah, You. you, you what, what we call like um, two cups of small dice, which is a broom if they weren't perfect, which may have taken you 20 to 30 minutes to cut. Uh, Um, you know, that, that could be a starting over point uh, where you now wasted 40 minutes of your day. So you're totally behind. So you're always on eggshells. Did that uh, happen to you? Oh yeah. It happens to everyone. (laughs) Tell me, tell me, tell me a story of how it happened to you. What happened to you? Oh man, it's what didn't happen. (laughs) You know, in in that caliber restaurant, there's something that's going to go wrong each and every day. And when you have perfect days, man, it's the most exhilarating thing ever. You feel like a king and you want to come back and you're ready to run. And then your bubble is burst the next day because like you you didn't dice it right. But I mean, like some of the tasks that we had to do that, you know, crushed everyone was the the famous egg shell where, you know, there's an egg custard in the shell and it's presented to guests with a potato chip that's cut and that has a chive kind of set in the center of the potato chip and it's baked perfectly golden brown and the chip is crispy and it sits in the egg custard like a feather. But there are so many stages to get to that custard that is eaten in five seconds from the guest. Uh-huh. The start is the intern whose job is to actually open up that egg, cut a perfect ring around that egg, tip the top of that egg off, drain that egg. There's a membrane inside of that egg that you actually need to get out because you definitely don't want a guess digging in to their custard and they're pulling out this membrane that looks like a piece of slime now. So you, you have to soak the egg in a hot water vinegar solution for, you know, set period of time. And that time is to be determined depending on the structure of the eggshell, uh, you know, but these eggs are extremely fragile. And we're talking about like you might be doing 90 eggs and you get a 30 percent yield. So you get 30 eggs done out of a case of 90 that you've done. And then the worst is that you get your 30% yield at best. They sit overnight. And then when the chefs come in the next day and they're starting to fill the eggs and they start cracking and they're down to 10 eggs, and then you're coming in and you're now, you know, the, the first person you're confronted by is the chef saying, what the heck happened? How did you spend two hours yesterday cleaning these eggs and we only have 10? You know, that's like, it's a blow in the stomach that just makes you want to turn around and walk out. Did that happen to you? Certain things, yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. (laughs) I didn't turn around and walk out. That's why I'm still here this day. But there were blows like that that happened all the time. Those were the humbling moments that I had as a young chef, um, as a young culinarian. I realized that there was so much to learn, so much to experience, and so much for me to figure out who I am in this industry. For you personally, like, did did you feel like you fit in in the
0: kitchen? Did it, was it like, was it like mm-hmm. I don't know, like
1: how, how many black people were, were working in that kitchen? And how, was that an issue or not? Oh, that's the an easy answer. There's two of us. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, one in pastry and and me the intern. Um, so one, there were... Out of how many people? Uh, 40, 50, 50 people uh-huh. or so. But I mean, that's the reality of the of the fine dining world. you know there's not many people of color in that world. It's not many people can actually sacrifice and afford to walk the walk to be in this industry at least when I started. Mm-hmm. I mean, you understand the route that I had to take to to get there it's, it's how many people can put themselves in that much debt to actually, you know, make it to where I am now. And I'm, honestly, I can say I'm still paying on my student loan, you know. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the kind of sacrifice that one needs to make. And so when you talk about people coming from similar backgrounds that I came from, there's not many of my friends or people that I know of that could have walked the walk that I walked to get here. So, so, yeah, there's there's not many of us in the fine dining world. Um, and, and understand, like, Napa Valley didn't have any to maybe one or two people of color also. So it's, mm-hmm. it wasn't like I can go to the movies on my day off and felt like I was comfortable still, even in Napa Valley, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I, I had to go to like Vallejo to actually like right. see other folks of color. Um, well, it's interesting.
0: I mean, because like you you were going there in many ways because it was it was a completely foreign world, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like that was the point, you know, in, in some way. Um but but then you get there and you're like,
1: oh, right. Yeah. I I'm mean, not, there's nobody like me here. Yeah, right? well, you know, but, I, didn't, I didn't technically expect that, but I also right. had a reality check. I mean, even in culinary school, there wasn't, we were probably 3% people of color there in culinary oh, wow, school. really? And uh-huh. out of the the 15 that I possibly knew of, I'm the only one that I know that went to fine dining, and I don't recall seeing any of my peers doing anything great. You know, some of them took jobs on oil rigs, some of them were working at nursing homes, Mm -hmm. Um, some of them were executive chefs for, like, the school system. You know, even the outcome of going to culinary school wasn't great for the folks of color, at least at my school, so... What is that about? Do you think is
0: that like I don't why know. why did why were you the only person of color that you knew from from your class who who, who went on the route that you did? Is it more about you? Is
1: it about the experience? Um, I don't know. No, it, one it is about me because I, I had a different mindset and a different mission in mind. I, I I think also I'm thinking about the the students that I I went to school with. A lot of them couldn't venture out further than where their families were um, for financial reasons too. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I think about from even a, 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 deeper standpoint, you know, the, the fine dining world, um, lends itself to a lot of mental abuse, a lot of physical abuse in the sense that you're working tons of hours. You're, you're there endless hours. You're thinking about food day in and day out. You're thinking about, you know, the, the lashings that you got because of you didn't have the Brunoise right? Or, or you didn't cook enough or something because you didn't know that this many guests were going to come in that night. Or, you know, some, something wasn't right. And so you're mentally taking that home every day. And there's a lot of people where I come from, um, they don't want to experience that. They experienced that in their life already. They went through enough turmoil and issues that why would I want to put myself in a career that's going to bring that same type of mentality from my boss, you know? So... I, I think a lot of that goes through a lot of people of color's mind. Mm-hmm. Um Right. If you're if if you're coming
0: from a more privileged background or whatever, and this is sort of like you can you can sort of write this off as like, this is, is a, a toughening
1: experience. Yeah, this is a rite of passage for me. Yes. But for for someone like me, normally, they'd be like, Hell no, I'm not going through that. Like, why would I do that? You know? I'm not like about to get yelled <laughs> at by some white guy in a white hat telling me that I'm too slow and not smart enough and That I cracked an egg wrong? Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Coming up after the break, Eduardo Jordan finally achieves his dream of becoming a star in the restaurant world. And then he invites his grandma to join him. Kind of. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Eduardo Jordan. Eduardo made it through the six months of his internship at the French Laundry, and it did what prestigious internships like that are supposed to do. It opened doors for him. The next several years of his life involved rising through the ranks of the food world and continuing his education. He traveled to Italy to learn the classic art of salami making from a sixth-generation Italian salumist. Yes, that's what they're called. He got a prestigious job as the chef de cuisine at a high-end restaurant in Seattle. And then in 2015, after almost a decade of preparation, he opened his own restaurant called Solari. The menu is seasonal, eclectic, and innovative, and draws on all his training. It can feature anything from homemade pastas to duck hand pies with sauce chasseur to ribeye steak with mint and coconut curry. When Solari opened, it was an overnight success. Eduardo was named one of the best new chefs in America by Food & Wine magazine. The world of promise that first opened to him on the pages of the French Laundry Cookbook, it took years and many miles spent traveling the globe, but Eduardo had seemingly arrived. And then, two years later, he opened a completely different kind of restaurant, June Baby, one that served food that you would never find in a classic French cookbook. Food that Eduardo Jordan wouldn't need a cookbook to cook at all so i want to talk about june baby now like what what was
1: the impetus for june baby um it was a business decision (laughs) Mm -hmm. what happened was um there was a restaurant right down the street from solari so all my restaurants are within walking distance two minutes away so Uh um right down the street was a this restaurant that was space that was empty and it, it it Continue to be empty, and someone told me, like, hey, I think that space is empty. Maybe you should check it out. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really interested in another restaurant. I mean, mind you, like, Solari took seven, eight, nine years to put together on paper. And to mm-hmm. even think about doing something more meant that I need to, like, put my brain down on paper again <laughs> and try to figure out what makes sense for me to do. Um, mm-hmm. and... As I kept thinking about it, I'm like, "Well, I can either open something there or I can let someone else open something there, and I have competition now and so from a business standpoint, I realized that it's probably gonna be it's probably gonna be a better decision that I at least take the chance to open up something there rather than let someone else come in and be just as good as Solari and give me competition and take away my clientele mm-hmm. but i I decided that I wanted to do something that for lack of better words, and and not to downplay June Baby, but something that was easy for me, something that was natural for me, because um, Solari takes a lot of brain work. It takes, like, introducing new flavors and new spices and seeing if they work, incorporating classic techniques and things of that nature and, and kind of twisting up what is supposed to be to something that is new. But innovating, you have to yeah, innovate. innovate. Yeah, it, take, it takes brain work to innovate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I I know I don't have enough brain power or width to like do a second Solari, and so I was thinking something fast casual. I was like, oh, maybe I do a smoked meats place. And as it started coming together, something was starting to happen where I started paying attention to the news. I don't pay attention to a lot of the food world um, because I kind of work in my own bubble. And I don't like trends. I don't follow trends. Um, And for whatever reason, I kind of was woken up and I was realizing, like, there were so many Southern restaurants popping up in the United States. And what struck me the most was that all of these Southern restaurants were ran by white chefs and chef owners. Mm -hmm. And I was just amazed and kind of taken back. I'm like, wow. Where did my where did my life go in this industry? Like, I, the, the, there's not many of us. And then the the many of us that are there, where are we and what are we doing and why aren't we why aren't we highlighting being highlighted for the foods that we cooked? It, it really struck me that a lot of black chefs and people of color we strayed away from cooking our own food because it had been talked down upon for many years. And so I realized that I, I pretty much um, sadly turned my back on my own food. I didn't truly express myself as a Southern chef with Salari. And the light bulb that's, that was coming on for me was that I needed to take the time and present Southern food the way that I know Southern food. And how can I present my Southern food from my perspective to the masses and present it from a chef perspective at the same time. So I'm looking over the the
0: lunch menu of of June Baby. It's got buttermilk biscuits, cast iron flint cornbread, pork cracklin, Nashville hot chicken gizzards, um,
1: pork neck bones mm-hmm. with braised leeks and fennel. <laughs> um, yeah, these th- these are the foods that I cooked. These are the foods that I ate. Together with my mom, my grandmother, and also my father. And my father taught me how to cook over live fire. And that's where the name June Baby actually comes from, from my father. That's his nickname. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I, I realized that I had an opportunity to present my food. Um, and my food meant so much more. It meant me researching my food more, meaning, where did this ingredient come from? Why did it land here? What's the hardship behind it? What's the blessing behind it? You know, what? Wh- where's the storyline to this ingredient? And this is the stories that my grandmother didn't tell me. And I wasn't sure if she was afraid to talk about chitlins or cared not to talk about chitlins or talk about some of the the offcuts that we had to eat. um, Like why we eat spoon cornbread, and, and whole cakes and, and and things of that nature, I didn't know the history of that. I knew that it tasted good. I knew how to cook it, but I actually didn't know a lot of the history of my food. And it became a mission for me when I was establishing the concept for June Baby to understand my roots more, to understand the bloodline of a lot of the ingredients that make Southern food, telling the story of the migration of African and African-American cuisine in America. What, what is the story
0: of, like, um, chitlins or spoon cornbread? Like, what, what was the thing that you learned that, that, that your grandmother, that you had not talked to your grandmother
1: about? Well, you know, she, she told me about, like, the reason she cooked collard greens or cabbage is because that's what they grew in their yard. They cooked what was available to them. And um, when they did go to the meat market, the things that they could afford was the offcuts because they were, you know, you you had to make the best out of what you can. That's the story that my grandmother told. But the reality about like chitlins and a lot of these offcuts is during the time of slavery and in the time of forcefully bringing people over to the United States to build America, those people that were bringing all of these folks over unwillingly were eating high on the hog. And everyone else was eating low on the hog, eating chitlins and hearts and ears, you know, while the slave masters were eating the ham, the shoulder, the pork loin. And there was someone cooking that food for both sides of that table. So they had this mass talent and knowledge about food that is always overlooked. Mm -hmm. And it's that talent that was overlooked and has always been overlooked. Uh, and forgotten about like the the slave master didn't care about the um black ip you know the black ip was to the, the nourish their land um but africans realized like hey, this is a a, a nourishment and add it to rice mm-hmm. you get a full meal you know uh
0: so the, so the the plantation owners were planting black peas just to
1: fix the nitrogen in the soil so they could grow the cotton yeah and, got you know, that. and things that, you you know, you eat your black-eyed peas and rice and you got a full meal. You can cook the leaves of black-eyed peas. And, you know, now you got another braised greens, you know. Collard greens didn't come over because Africans brought over. Collard greens came over to fix the land for um, the rice fields and, and, and build structure uh-huh. to the land. And so Africans cooked collard greens because that was available to them. And they cooked it because it was familiar to them in a sense. It looked like and kind of tastes like other greens that we used to cook. So collard greens became a staple in the South because, like, they made the best out of nothing. Yeah, It's that story that I'm trying to tell with June Baby, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, that actually makes up the landscape of America and American cuisine. This is what, you know eating in the little house looks like. And and not many of us ever had the opportunity to eat in the big house. So it's just a reminder, like, the food of June Baby is history, man. It's it's rooted. And um, I'm excited and proud to present it.
0: Since winning that James Beard Award for June Baby, Eduardo Jordan has opened a third restaurant. It's right next door. And it's called Lucinda Grain Bar, named after his great-grandmother. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick and Rob Zipko. It's edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, make sure to follow us. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.